Hello and welcome to Contemplative Episcopalian, a podcast of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. We are a Christian faith community located in downtown Beloit, Wisconsin. I am Father T.J. Humphrey, and for this episode, we're beginning a new series. I'm beginning a new series with you. It's a, like a lecture series, actually. Um, and it's titled Liturgy Gathering. Uh, okay, gathering around the practice of non-duality. I've renamed this thing like 10 times now, but I forget which, which what was the last name that I landed on. The title of this new series is called Liturgy, Gathering Around the Practice of Non-Duality. And I'll explain a lot about what the series is about in this episode. This is kind of the Kickstarter, the introductory episode um, for the series. Uh, the, these, these lectures will be coming out hopefully, if I can manage, on a weekly basis, probably for the next several weeks to a couple months, uh, in addition to all of the homilies and stuff like that that come out, too. So these are, just to give you a heads up, they're less sermony, they're more lecture-y, uh, yeah, uh, but I encourage you to give them a try anyways. Um, yeah, yeah, give it a try. <laughs> see, see how you like it. And um, yeah, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Peace be with you. One of the theologians who has influenced me most over the years is a guy by the name of John Zazulis. Yes, that is fun to say. Say it with me. John Zazulis. It's a Greek name. Well, John Zazulis, he is a metropolitan in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Metropolitan of Pergamon. And oftentimes he also serves as the right-hand man or a sidekick of sorts, to the Patriarch of Constantinople, Patriarch Bartholomew. Now, what I'm about to say, it's a huge, huge oversimplification, but I'm trying to help us poor Episcopalians out (laughs) and trying to connect some dots here. But the Patriarch of Constantinople, in some ways, is a lot like our Archbishop of Canterbury, to give us a little bit of a reference point, just a tiny one. And John Zazulus often serves by this Patriarch's side. So in other words, yeah, he's kind of a big deal. And whenever it comes to his literary output, he's a bit like the Daniel Day-Lewis of the theological world. If you know anything about the actor Daniel Day-Lewis, you know that he really seems to value the notion of quality over quantity, that sometimes less is more. He's not like Nicolas Cage. He's not in every single movie that's ever made, right? He's pretty selective with um, the movies he's willing to attach his name to. So even though he hasn't starred in that many films, especially when you compare him to other actors of his caliber, Nicolas Cage is not one of them, by the way. (laughs) Even so, Daniel Day-Lewis has still received multiple awards for his roles nonetheless. He is still seen as one of the greatest actors to have ever lived, even though his films are few and far between. Well, Zazulus is viewed in a pretty similar way in the theological world. He hasn't published really that many books, but the books that he has penned, they have all made a significant impact. Another famous theologian once said that every time John Zazulus publishes a new work, it is a major event. It's a big deal. 
Zazulus has written books on liturgy and the ecological crisis, actually how participating in a Eucharistic liturgy can help us reframe, refocus, um, can shift our consciousness around, um, around ecological concerns, where we can understand our connection to the cosmos all the more. And he's written books on how theology can inform philosophy, how it can actually create a better philosophy. That's been a major project of his. But his most famous work of all is called Being as Communion. Being as Communion. And it came out in the mid-80s, and it shook a lot of the theological world back then, so much so that people are still talking a lot about it today, actually. The book... It's definitely a brain punch, but if you can make your way through it and get his whole vision, especially on the first time through, it really says something about your intellectual prowess and your spiritual depth, because you need both to manage his works. But if you're like me, on the other hand, you can read it like 10 times and still not get it. (laughs) It's not that Zazulis, as an author, is hard to understand or that his writing style is difficult to follow. It's just that he sees the world in a profoundly different way than most of us do, and he writes from that reference point. It would be like if someone were to travel to another planet, and while there they saw things that we earthlings haven't even created categories for. And if that person came back to earth and then tried to articulate everything that she saw, people would have a really hard time wrapping their heads around what she was describing. The words would just fail, right? Well, when it comes to John Zazulis... He's just simply beyond the orbit of the average human mind. He's wrapping words around mystical territories that few have actually taken the time to explore, much less understand. I mean, the opening line of being as communion, it goes like this. The church is not simply an institution. She is a mode of existence, a way of being. And from there, the whole book is about how the church, with all of her liturgies and her rituals and her hierarchy and her institutions, how it's all uniquely designed to take on God's way of being within the world. Like, (laughs) mind blown. (laughs) It's a brilliant work. In an age when the church was preoccupied with what it should or should not be doing, Zazulis came onto the scene with a focus, rather, on the church's being, with a focus on how the gathered community can help people to snap awake to the fullness of their existence. Whenever I read that book for the first time, it totally wrecked me. I mean, by the time I had gotten to the final paragraph in the closing chapter, The ground had shifted beneath my feet. The toothpaste had come out of the tube. (laughs) There was no putting it back in from that point on. There was no going back for me. I realized then and there that I could no longer continue down the trajectory that life had me on. That I could no longer remain in the reformed evangelical faith tradition that I was a part of at the time. If there was anything that planted the first seeds of the priesthood within me. It was that book. That's how life-changing it was for me.
Before that book, I saw myself, yeah, as a minister, as a pastor. But after that book, I realized that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing unless I became a priest. It rooted me in the importance of the priesthood. One of Zazulus's one-liners that I like to come back to frequently, it goes like this. Where the Holy Spirit blows, he, or I like to say she, does not create good individual Christians, but community. For me, this quote serves as a perfect stepping off point for authentic spirituality. But it also serves as a good milestone for spiritual maturity. I'll explain. Where the Holy Spirit blows. Zazulus is playing with biblical imagery here. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit, ruach, is the same word for breath or wind. So he's playing with this poetic imagery. Where the Holy Spirit blows, she doesn't create good individual Christians, but community. If you were to come to me and ask, Father TJ, can you tell me if my spiritual practices are leading me to a good place, if they're actually transforming me for the better or not? And if I asked you how you embody these spiritual practices, what they look like, and if you were to respond to me by saying that, you know, even though you don't go to church or a meditation center or anything like that, but instead you practice meditation and mindfulness every day by yourself for hours at a time, and you, you read a lot of good spiritual books and you listen to a lot of spiritual talks, things like that. And if you were to tell me that all of these actions and all of these practices have a way of making you feel more at peace, more whole, that they've helped to reduce your anxiety, that because of them you feel more level-headed now and more at harmony with yourself, do you know how I would respond to you? I would ask you why you're still waiting in the shallow end of the pool. I would ask you why you don't seem that concerned to take the training wheels off the bike yet. And I would tell you that you'll never mature beyond where you are now if you keep just doing the things that you're doing by yourself. Why? Because the end goal of spirituality it's not about union with one's self. It's not about achieving inner harmony within oneself. Rather, the end goal is about uncovering one's union with the divine, one's union with others. Now, yes, to be sure, inner peace and inner harmony and reduced anxiety and all that crap. <laughs> These, yes, they are all important byproducts, great byproducts of the spiritual life. But they are never meant to be ends in and of themselves. Nor do they indicate healthy spirituality. Sometimes, my friends, you are at your healthiest when you feel like everything is a raging dumpster fire. Sometimes you are the most in tune with the spirit when you feel the most agitated, disturbed, and disheveled. The dark night of the soul is an important part of the faith journey. So if you're always peaceful and <laughs> always unanxious, uh, that's not a good indicator, right? And again, 
More importantly, where the Holy Spirit blows, she doesn't create good individual Christians or meditators or mystics. No, she creates community. That's what her project is all about. So if your spiritual practice, if it propels you towards others, and if you feel the need to connect yourself to the spiritual rhythms of a community, if you feel the need to deepen your own practice by journeying alongside others, it's a good indicator that you're on the right track, that you're maturing, that you are in tune with the Spirit. But on the other hand, if you feel the need to detach If you feel the need to drive a really stark wedge between what you perceive religion to be and your own spiritual project, if you feel as though other people are an inconvenience to your spiritual journey, that they are an impediment to a deep prayer life for you, and if you decide from all of that to go solo, to fly solo, to detach from all religion, you can be certain that it's not the spirit who is leading you, rather it's your own pride. For the Spirit will always, always lead us into spiritual community, not away from it. Sometimes, yes, we have to leave one community in order to discover another, but the Holy Spirit will not lead us away from all community altogether. It's an unfortunate thing that people inside the church and people outside the church uh, who, who maintain some level of like Jesus awareness, right, they're all equally as prone to forget like what Jesus' whole project was all about. Jesus did not come into the world to pass on a new dogma or to start a new religion. He didn't come to hand down some new ethical code of conduct. And let's be honest, his teaching it really wasn't all that unique. His life was the thing that was unique about him, that still is, but much of what he said could be found already in the Jewish mystics who came before him. Much of what he said could be found like 500 years earlier in the teachings of the Buddha. Really, really, his teaching wasn't the thing that made him unique. No. Jesus' major contribution to the world was a gathered community which bears his name. A community of people who identify themselves with his body, with his presence in the world. A community of people where people can discover their true selves in the midst of. Could discover the divine in the midst of. This is precisely why Jesus said that when two or three are gathered together in his name, he would be where? In the midst of them. Jesus isn't made manifest through individuality, but through community. Jesus' presence isn't revealed through solo spirituality, but through gathered community. And it's not the number of people that matters. It can be as little as two or three, Jesus says. What matters is that people have gathered together in his name that they have united themselves to one another in the same way that he has united himself to them. This, it is this that's the conduit through which Christ is made known to the world. This is also why Jesus said that the world can only know his presence through the ways in which those who have gathered together in his name and the ways they love each other. 
<clears throat> I've talked with so many people over the years who have said that they still love Jesus, but they have fallen out of love with the church. They say that they still follow him, but they no longer want to participate in a faith community of any kind. They want to be spiritual, but not religious. To them, I say, it's no longer Jesus that they are following, but again, their own pride, their own pride. Why? Because where the Holy Spirit blows, she does not create good individual Christians, but community. Now, granted, we in the church have not made it easy on people. We've not kept the main thing the main thing. And oftentimes we end up trying to change the zoo, the, the I'm, I'm butchering his name now. We end up trying to change the zoo, oh my goodness. <laughs> Third time's a charm. Oftentimes we end up trying to change the Zulus quote, saying something like, where the Holy Spirit blows, she does not create good individual Christians, but tradition, or dogma, or ethical codes, or ritualism. Or worse, where the Holy Spirit blows, she does not create good individual Christians, but homophobia, and transphobia, and racism, and elitism, and misogyny, and ageism, and hypocrisy. Now, don't get me wrong. While Christians should have zero tolerance for all of those latter things that I just mentioned, right? Things like misogyny and homophobia and racism. Even though that's the case, there is a place for things like dogma and tradition and ritualism and ethics and the whole institutional part of the church. Contrary to much modern opinion, these latter things are all incredibly important. But we in the church, we tend to forget that things like dogma, tradition, ethics, ritualism, that these things are all wonderful servants, but they are terrible masters. And in other words, it's not the institution that's the problem, but how the institution is lived into or not lived into. Tradition is not the problem. It's the ways in which we seek to embody it or the ways in which we fail to embody the best of it. That is the problem. And far too often, we in the church make church more about the preservation of our institutions or the propping up of our dying traditions than about the creation of a life-giving, deeply spiritual, diverse, transformative community. And so the whole community part of it all becomes subservient to the institutional part. And people, real people, and diversity, like real diversity, all of that fades into the background of our priorities and our concerns. We in the church have forgotten that Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. That institution was given for man not man for institution. I mean, the most important part of a marriage, it's not the marriage certificate that proves that the union has become institutionalized. <laughs> That's not the most important part, right? No, the most important part is the love that is shared between the two people. 
And really, the union should only become institutionalized if the love is there. Because if the love is absent, the institutional part no longer depicts the reality. Hmm. My friends, for the next several weeks, I'm going to try to sell you on the importance of showing up. Of being a part of a faith community. And for the next several weeks, in order to get to that... I'm also going to try to redefine religion for you and how you think about it. And for those of you who like to drive a wedge between the concepts of religion and spirituality, I'm going to attempt to show you just how unproductive and self-sabotaging that wedge really is. If I haven't shown you yet, <laughs> I'm going to keep trying to do so. I am of the opinion that we, it would be good if we all decided to come up with a new definition for the word religion. And rather than getting into like the etymology of the word or circling back around again to what the word has meant to people in the past, instead I just want to share with you what the word has always meant to me. Which is why I've never taken issue with it to begin with, and why I get so confused by the people who do. I've always defined religion as communal spirituality, or gathered spirituality, or shared spirituality, something like that, right? Because religion, true religion, is about journeying into non-dual consciousness, into inner transformation together. Together. It's about highlighting and celebrating just how interconnected we all are. For all of the major faith traditions, not just Christianity, along with modern science for that matter, they all make the claim that everything is ultimately interconnected. They all point out the truth of that fact. It's not just a claim, it's a truth. Everything is ultimately interconnected. And mystics of every tradition experience this cosmic non-duality, this universal oneness. So severing oneself from community, from every religious group altogether in order to plant oneself more firmly within some kind of like solo spiritual project. It just doesn't make any sense. It's counterproductive and contradictory. Flying solo in a world where everything is interconnected doesn't make any damn sense whatsoever. That's the point. So I've decided to name this lecture series Liturgy. Gathering around the practice of non-duality. I, yeah. And what I'm going to do is unpack the different parts of what we Episcopalians call the liturgy. The thing that we do whenever we gather together on Sunday mornings. And I'm doing this project first and foremost, again, to try to sell folks on the importance of practicing one's spirituality with others. But also I'm doing this because so many people have told me in recent years that they really, really like my preaching, but they don't so much like all of the ritualism and ceremony that happens in our Episcopal services on Sunday mornings. Uh, so they're happy to, happy to listen to me like online, <laughs> but they don't want to show up to my church. Uh, all of this is profoundly confusing to me because I... Personally, I cannot detach the contents of my preaching from the mysticism and the mystery of the liturgy. I'm preaching from a liturgical reference point. 
It's all of this liturgy, all of the ceremony, all of that ritualism, all of it makes my preaching what it is. Like without it, my preaching would not be the same. And I know this to be true because before I became an Episcopalian, my preaching was not the same. It was very different than it is now. So like to like my sermons, but not the liturgy, I cannot, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> at all. Hmm. And if I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, well, that's good for you, but I'm not into all of that Catholic stuff. Let's just say I'd have a lot of freaking nickels. <laughs> I've, I've had that conversation with people like five or six times in the last two weeks. <laughs> that's, that's how my last couple of weeks have been going. How's your weeks going, right? Um, but I just want to point out just how offensive that line of thought is towards Roman Catholics, right? I'm not into all that Catholic stuff. It's just offensive. And it's also a bit disrespectful to both traditions whenever people conflate what we Episcopalians do with what Roman Catholics do. Yes, Episcopalians, we do hold a lot of things in common with Roman Catholics, but the ways in which we hold these common things is very, very different. Lastly, an observation. It's always abundantly clear to me that this like liturgical ritualistic dismissal is coming from a place of laziness and ignorance. Like people aren't actually taking the time to understand the liturgy before they decide to dismiss it, to say it's not for them. Uh, it's clear that they have no idea what it is that they're dismissing, because if they did, they wouldn't dismiss it to begin with. My friends, liturgy is about learning the language of mysticism. It's about learning the language of mystery. It's about learning the language of non-dualistic spirituality. I'll define that here in a minute. But even more, it's about practicing non-duality. So let me conclude this talk by unpacking the terms in the title of this new series, Liturgy gathering around the practice of non-duality. The word liturgy is most commonly defined as the work of the people. And it's the name for the thing that Christians have done together on Sunday mornings from the very beginning of the early Jesus movement, right? It's probably the oldest name that has been used to describe what we Christians do together because the word goes all the way back to the Bible itself. And I know some Traditions don't use the word liturgy to describe their services. Well, they're innovators. <laughs> they haven't stuck to historical Christianity because uh, liturgy is the historical term that's given for what we Christians do together, right? The most ancient term. In defining this word as the work of the people is important because, again, it highlights the fact that it's only something that we can do together. It's the work of the whole people and not the work of a person. So what is this work that we gather together to do? This action, this practice that we have the joy and the privilege of doing together week in and week out. It's the practice of non-duality. I like this word practice 
Because going to church, it's not about learning some new rational concepts or submissively receiving some dogmas as if your mind were nothing more than a receptacle for churchy information, right? Yeah, sure. Yes, you may learn some things. Hopefully you do. But that's not what church is about. Liturgy is an action. It's about doing something, not just about thinking about something. It's ultimately about practicing non-duality. Again, over the course of the next several weeks, I will talk about how we practice non-duality or union through all of the various components of the liturgy, the service. But for now, let me end with how I define non-duality. Simply, yeah, it's the overcoming of duality. <laughs> be easy as that, right? Uh, the overcoming of duality or division. Yes, we could go a lot deeper for the philosophically inclined folks out there. Like we could go a lot deeper into the concept, but keeping it simple will be the best thing for our purposes here in this series. But non-duality, it's about overcoming division, barriers, dualities, right? So in the liturgy, the work, the practice, we practice overcoming the chasms that we tend to erect between mind and heart, between heaven and earth, between the body and the universe, between spirituality and physicality. The liturgy itself, every part of it, it invites us to see that everything is interconnected, that there really is no duality between us and God. The liturgy invites us to see that there really is no duality between you and me. All are one. As St. Paul said in his earliest letter, there really is no such thing as male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. All are one in Christ. In a word, we come together to practice this oneness and to give thanks for it. In a world that only knows how to divide, we practice bringing all of life's diversities together into a harmonious, beautiful unity. And we offer it all back up to God in thanksgiving. That, that is the work of the people. That is the liturgy. We're on this next week. <laughs>